Please can be seated. This morning, Josh is going to be teaching from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And I will read it for you. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right, so good morning. Uh, today uh, our message is going to have two parts to it. And I want you to, to stay with me through both parts. The first part is going to be heavy on theology. And the second part is going to be heavy on application. So if you're one of these people that's like, I, I don't need your theology nonsense. Just tell me what to do. You're going to love the second part, but, well, you may not love it. The second part is going to be more in your wheelhouse, let's say. You might hate both parts. Uh, but the theology part is really, really important. So I'd encourage you to pay attention. And if you're like, you know what? I don't need your application. Don't tell me what to do, preacher man. Just tell me how to think. Uh, and you're like, I want depth and I want theology. Then I'd really encourage you also to pay attention to this part. But both parts are going to be really important because I think one hinges on the other. So, so I feel like as I was preparing for this, I feel like this is like whenever uh, you were in school and your teacher, uh, and this is their way of getting out of work, they go, for our next unit, you guys are going to be the teacher. And then you had to learn, like, everything about earthworms, you know, and then you did a presentation. Earthworms are segmented animals. And then you'd go through the, you know, I, I feel like that's what this is for me because I, I had to, like, research a lot because I'm not super familiar with some of the concepts here. So this is my presentation on... Uh, where, where are we? Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I'm very well prepared. So uh, this, if you're familiar with it, uh, it's usually referred to as the temptation of Christ. If you have like little headers over your, your paragraphs in your Bible, it probably says the temptation of Christ. And if I were to be honest with you, and I hope this doesn't uh, strike me dead instantly, or Rick says, that's heresy, uh, which we'll see. The temptation of Christ never really impressed me much before. You know, it's like, yeah, he was hungry, and he didn't change, you know, stones to bread, and he didn't do these other things. Like, but is that really that big of a temptation? You know, maybe there could have been something better. It's like whenever somebody, like, builds up, like, now I'm going to go and do this amazing thing. And, the, like, when your kids come to you, and they're like, mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, watch this. And you're like, that's amazing. You know, that's how I always kind of was with this. But, 
But the more I actually understood and realized that I was stupid and that I didn't really understand it until now I understand a little bit more, but I still don't understand it, now it becomes more impressive. It's like, oh, that actually is really, really cool. So in order to understand this passage, we need to understand a few things about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is fully God. He is 100% God. To, to uh, understand this, we're going to look at John chapter 8, verses 52 through 59. John chapter 8, verses 52 through 59. I'll read it. Uh, even though it will be up there, you can read along with me. We'll read in unison. It'll be great. It says this, The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. They yelled it even. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And then Jesus says to them, and this is the kicker, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we're like, what does that mean? But the Jews knew, oh, you're claiming to be God. It's time for you to die. So verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So he's like, I'm out, and he, and he goes, because he's about to die, because he just claimed to be God. Jesus is fully God. He is 100% God. But we have to remember that God cannot be tempted. In James, James chapter 1.13, I won't turn to it, but it's on the screen. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So Jesus, 100% God, 100% cannot be tempted. And yet we're about to read about the temptation of Christ. This is where the theology part comes in really, really big. How can the two coexist? We, we know that Jesus is 100% man. We, we can see that. Nobody really doubted that. They saw him walking around. They were like, are you really a man? They, they knew he was a dude, right? But then he's also claiming to be 100% God. And so theologians early on were like, well, how does this work? And like all good humans, we try to come up with very simple explanations. We said, okay, 100 plus 100 has got to somehow equal 100. So how do we do it? So some guys were like, you know what I think it is? Jesus' body was 100% man, but his mind and his spirit were 100% God. That was divine. This little part was human. Well, that's heresy. That, that goes against what Scripture says, that Jesus is 100% man and 100% uh, God. Then some other people were like, well, what if 
He's two people in one body, and he kind of switches between the two. And he's like, today I'm going to be God, and tomorrow I'll be man. That's also heresy. What reality is, is this. I drew a little diagram that I did not come up with. Don't think I'm taking credit for it. Uh, if you think I'm an amazing artist, I understand. Uh, so the, I, we have two circles here. This right here is the Trinity, also inexplicable. Three persons of God, fa uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in case for those playing along at home. 100% uh, God, uh, but three persons, all individually God, but then all making up God together. It makes sense if you think it doesn't make sense, and anybody that tries to tell you it makes sense, it, you can't understand it. Now, here's God. Here's the person of Christ. Look, I made him smiling. I thought, Jesus probably smiled. Uh, so the person of Christ, his human nature, all person of Christ, human nature, where it intersects with the Son, this is his divine nature. 100% divine nature, 100% human nature. Jesus had all of this making up his whole being. It doesn't, just because you don't understand it, doesn't mean it's not true. Typically, and this is called hypostatic union. Uh, and and uh, basically what it, that means, hypo, under, static, what, what you can see, like, like what is present. So underneath the reality was this unification of the human nature and the divine nature in the one person of Christ. Jesus being completely God and completely man. Typically, whenever we try to explain complex theological concepts, a lot of times people will come up with analogies that they think are helpful, but really they're heretical. I tried looking up uh, ones for hypostatic union. There aren't really any. Everybody just gave up on trying to explain it because it's impossible. But for the Trinity, there's lots. They're like, well, it's the same way that I can be a father and an employee and a son and a husband. Well, that's modalism and that's heresy because I'm, I'm, I'm not that same thing to everyone. I am all those things to you at once. God is the, all three persons. Or they'll be like, okay, it's kind of like the sun is, you know, there's the star, but it also gives off heat and light. Well, yes, all three in those one thing, but the sun creates those. And God did not create the Son and the Holy Spirit. They have all eternally coexisted. In general, you will end up with bad theology if you look for simple explanations of complex concepts. It, bad theology is rooted in simple explanations of complex concepts. Good theology is comfortable with the inexplicable. Good theology sees this, states it, and is comfortable that it can't be explained. It's comfortable with the Trinity. It's comfortable with hypostatic union, just saying, this is what the Bible says. I have no reason to disbelieve it. So now that that's set up, let's read our passage. Let, let's walk through our passage, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, 
and, and let's see what's going on, knowing that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He has the complete divine nature and the complete human nature. It says, uh, so this is Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So this is where before I was completely unimpressed. Because he's God. You know, and so, like, I get it. He's going to be hungry. But he's God. You know, but understanding that he's completely human, he's hungry. I, I go about, right now, a confession. Uh, I'm trying to lose weight. Uh, I, I know what you're thinking. Josh, you're already the fittest person I know. But just imagine if I dropped, you know, a couple pounds before I went to the beach in a week and a half. Uh, and, and that'd be great. Uh, but it's not going to happen. So my current plan is this. I eat uh, every two hours, and, and I have... a. Uh, uh, burger and fries every two hours, and it's really working. No, but uh, at 8 o'clock when I get to work, I have six Triscuits, and then at 10 o'clock, I have a Slim Fast, and then at 12 o'clock, I have six Triscuits, and then at 2 o'clock, I have a Slim Fast, and then I get home, and I am insanely hungry, and because of that, I, I get home, and I'm not the most pleasant person to be around. Uh, I, I, uh, my, my wife has helped my kids uh, dub me as Krabby Daddy, uh, which if you're already crabby and then somebody calls you Krabby Daddy, it doesn't really help the situation. Uh, I have threatened to call her Krabby Mommy when she's crabby, but I also don't have a death wish, so I have not done that. Uh, yeah, but I could say, like, what rhymes with Mommy? Uh, yeah, I'll come up with something. No, no, no. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, I, I could say uh, surly. That doesn't rhyme either. I don't know. But the point is, you know, I'll be in a bad mood because I'm, I'm hungry. And there, there is knowing that Jesus has spent 40 days and 40 nights. It's very explicit there. So it's like, yeah, but it doesn't say nights. So he was probably eating pretty well at night. 40 days, 40 nights, he ate nothing. Like, I don't know if anybody has ever done an extended fast. I did five days one time, uh, and, and I don't, like, I didn't do that, like, I'm going to fast five days. Like, I was at a church, and uh, I was on staff, and as a staff, we decided together that we were going to do five days of fasting. So I kind of had it, some fast for five days because uh, they're born that way. Others have it thrust upon them. That was me. So I, I, I did it, and, you know, I was not in the best mood. My wife claimed I stink uh, and things like that. So it, it, you're not in the best mood. And so he's gone 40 days, and he's probably not in the best mood. He's probably not doing the best. He is an easy target to be like, hey, I'll give you some chicken wings. And then, oh, yeah, dude, I'm in. You know, so... He's hungry, uh, and that's what I love how it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, just in case you're not following along, he was hungry. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
I like to think, now keep in mind, Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights, he's out there in the wilderness by himself. And yes, I'm sure he was praying, but like he's not eating. What else is there to do? I'm guessing he had, he had kind of gathered some stones. And he's like, don't these kind of look like loaves of bread? I'll set these up and I'll just act like I'm eating these. Or, ooh, this one looks like a cake. And I'll put it there. Ooh, this one looks like a steak. And then, you know, like when your kids bring you like play food to eat, like I, I'm guessing that's what he did. So Satan shows up and he's like, oh, you already have these here. Why don't you command them to become actual loaves of bread? And, uh, but how he phrases it, we're going to come back to this. Satan says, if you are the son of God, we're going to come back to that two times later on. If you are the son of God, he is saying, Hey, I can see that you're man, but if you're really this, if you really have this divine nature, this divine power, why don't you just do this simple thing and make these stones become loaves of bread? Jesus answered, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan loses his opportunity right here and says, yes, not live by bread alone, but you can still eat bread. Am I right? Why don't you do it? But he moves on to the next topic. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, and they estimate this is about 300 feet high and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And I'm sure Jesus could rationalize this. Well, wouldn't this be a great introduction to, oh, you must be God. You're the guy that jumped down 300 feet and just kind of like landed. And that seems pretty divine. That's amazing. And now you've got this great following. Instead, Jesus says to him, verse 7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you. Satan's changing up his tactic. First two are, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. And now he's saying, again, in his, wait. Now he's saying, all these, verse nine, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, what, what I think is important to understand is that Jesus had to endure this temptation. Two things about it. To show his humanity, to show that, hey, I have endured temptation just like each of you are going to endure or have endured. But uh, to show his humanity and his ability to remain sinless. In this one act, in this one time period, he's showing both his human nature, I'm hungry, I'm being tempted, and his divine nature, I'm not sinning. I, I, I am able to, to overcome that. I, I am showing that, that I have power. It's also important to understand that he's tempted three times. It wasn't, he could have in the very beginning say, uh, get out of here, Satan, I'm done with you. But he waits for the third time. In, in the Bible, anytime something happens three times, it's at like its limit. It's the most extreme. You know, it's like good, better, best. It, this is the ultimate. So it, there's three times that he's tempted. And Jesus conquered the temptation with his humanity. 
All the while, Satan was tempting Jesus with his divinity. He's saying, look, if you are God, then do this. And Jesus is saying, comes back to him and says, yes, I'm God, but I, I don't need to be God right now. I, I, can, I need to conquer this in my human nature. I need to conquer this by being a man and suffering. By, and I don't mean like men suffer. I meant like being mankind and enduring the suffering and not caving into the temptation. And what you'll notice as you read the Gospels, as you see Jesus' interaction, he never used his divine nature to improve his situation. It was always improving others' situation, whether it was feeding 5,000 people whether it was providing more wine for a wedding, whatever it was, it was always helping others. He never chose to lessen his suffering or to improve his situation. And what's interesting, the third time Satan comes at him, he's like, look, you're doing this so that you can rule over everything. I'm offering a shortcut to that with no suffering. All you have to do is bow down to me and I'll get you to where you want to be. No suffering at all. And Jesus said, no, the path is suffering. Jesus only used his divine nature to advance the kingdom of God. Going back to that verse in John, one of the verses in John that we read earlier, John 8, 54, uh, Jesus, as he's interacting with the Jewish leaders, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Jesus here is saying, if I use anything about me to glorify myself, it, it doesn't benefit me at all. I need to glorify God. He then will in turn choose to glorify me or not glorify me. It's up to, up to the Father. And, and this stands in stark contrast to our temptation that our representative said, when we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, they're sitting there, they have access to everything, their life is perfect, there's no suffering, but then they're tempted by the knowledge of good and evil. They're tempted by saying, well, we can do all these things, but here's the one thing we're not allowed to do. Let's go and do that. Jesus has the ability to do whatever he wants and says, I'm going to choose not to do that. Now, usually the temptation of Christ's passage is about how to resist temptation. And I think it's really important that we spend a little bit of time there. And, and I, I do want us to realize that you should memorize scripture so you can quote scripture. So you can prom, like remind yourself of the promises of God. It is really important that we remind ourselves that, that God has empowered us to resist temptation. You know, that, that there's no temptation that's come upon our lives, that he hasn't given us the power to endure. That's really, really important because the, the word of God is living and active. It, it is powerful and, and that it really is alive and can help us. I, I do want to spend some focus on that. But also, I think we need to see that it's helpful to do what Jesus did when he realized he had endured the temptation he didn't say it there. He's like, what else he got, Satan? He goes, get out of here. I'm done. He removes himself from the situation. Really, he removes the situation from himself. And, and I, I think we have a tendency to lurk in that situation because 
the, the, the temptation is strong. Uh, I, I was a youth pastor for many years, and a lot of times uh, there's, there's the good kids that you have, and then there's the bad kids that you have, and then there's like the bad kids that don't come around until they're, they get into a lot of trouble, and then their parents make them come in to meet with you so that you can fix them. Uh, and uh, one time there was this kid that came in, and he was coming off of a 12-month stint in uh, outpatient rehab. Uh, he had been an addict, and he, one month before he was about to be released back into the wild, uh, he was forced to spend a week with a youth pastor. That was me. Uh, so I spent a week with this guy, and uh, I was like, so man, what, what's your plan? How are you going to stay, like, not doing drugs? He's like, man, I'm just going to say no. And I'm like, cool, cool. That's, man, that's a bad plan. I think you should come up with a different plan. You know, uh, I, maybe, you know, make some new friends. He's like, no, man, check it out. Like last night, I went and hung out with my old friends, and they were all smoking and, and uh, smoking weed. And, and he's like, I just said, nah, man, not right now. I'm like, that's cool. I, like, that's a good story but that's not going to be able to keep up. You're, you're going to cave into it. So he goes back, finishes up one more month of rehab, comes home, and uh, very quickly gets back into using drugs, uh, partying really heavily, uh, and, and he ended up, in, in just kind of an absurd consequence of this, he ended, because he thought he was a gangster, he ended up shooting his best friend. He's in jail still. He killed his best friend. Uh, and all because... He chose not to remove himself from the situation. He chose not to follow Christ's example and say, you know what, I'm going to be able to endure this temptation. I'm going to walk this fine line of being just there, and I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. And we like to stay right at the edge. And we say, how close can I get to the edge? Like when, when, when you're, before you're married, and... Uh, <laughs> You, you can't have sex, you're like, can't have sex, you know, biblically. Uh, I mean, you can, but like it's sin. You know, you're like, but how close can I get to having sex? You know, can I let, and then, you know, you fill in the blank with whatever you can do. You're like, but I can do all these things. I just can't have actual sexual intercourse, right? That's the line. And then we walk as close as we can to it. You know, how close can I get to, to doing these things? How close can I get to lying about this thing that's do at work? You know, maybe I can just misrepresent it and, and, and not fully lie, but not give all of the information, and then I can get out of, you know, being held accountable for it. We like to get as close as possible to it without removing ourselves from the situation. And so I, I think it's important that, that we see, see that uh, we need to remove ourselves from the situation. That can look different. You know, if, you're, if you struggle with jealousy, you know, if you're like, oh man, you know, all my friends, they go to Europe and they, you know, they spend all these days in, in Paris and then they go to Rome and then they come back. Like if you're sitting there and you're like struggling with that, do what I do and just get off Instagram. Like mute them for like a week and a half until they come back home and they're miserable with the rest of us here. And then it's like, okay, you know, just, just get off of it. Shut off the access to it. If you struggle with hating somebody, if you're like, man, I really just don't like that guy, then get to know them 
and, and find out like more about them, and then you'll really understand. You'll connect with them, or you'll just find out. Yeah, I really do hate them, and then just totally like avoid them, you know, and, and move on. If you struggle with, with lust, and, and this is me thinking last night, not that I was struggling with lust, but like, <laughs> but I'm like, what, how would this, you know, analogize, is that a word, to, to lust? And I'm like, just, to, you know, then imagine, man, that person's so hot, but they wouldn't be if they were covered in boils that were oozing pus. And, and you're like, oh, they're, they're slightly less attractive now, you know, and it, then it becomes easier. If you struggle with pride, uh, which is honestly like moment of vulnerability, I struggle with pride. Uh, go and do something you're really bad at. Every time I do a sport, I realize I have nothing to be proud of. I suck <laughs> at lots of things. I don't see that. That's funny. Okay, okay. Let's, so, so remove yourself from the situation. But what's interesting here, as I read the passage and as I really studied it, I identify most with Satan here. Uh, I, I identify with him because in this conversation he has with God, which we would call that prayer now. You know, my, my interaction with God is through prayer. A lot of my prayers hinge upon this, this uh, first contingent part, this God, if you're God, then do this. You know, and there, there's this, this moment of proof because uh, we are uncomfortable with praying big prayers because from our perspective, there are two possible reasons we might not get what we want. We're, we're uncomfortable with it because there's two possible reasons that we might not get uh, what we're asking for. And, and I'm going to put these up there so that we can pay attention to them. So we're going to put these up on the screen. Uh, so we're uncomfortable with praying these big prayers. Uh, with a, there's two possible reasons from our perspective, from this side. Uh, one, God is not God. That's one of the possible explanations. I prayed this. I asked God for this, and he didn't give it to me. Therefore, God's not God. That, that is a, a possible explanation. Another, probably equally possible explanation is that God does not love us. God is God. God does control this. He is ordering and shaping all things, and he didn't give this to me. He doesn't love me. And that's another possible place we can arrive. But really, the most plausible place that we can arrive at is that God said no because it wasn't part of his plan. It, for some reason, and, and I may not ever understand it on this side, but like, man, it wasn't part of his plan. Uh, it, it's rare that I pray big, like, audacious prayers. Uh, normally, they're more acts of immediacy. Uh, one time I, I did this, uh, my, I was with my mom. It was July 11th of 2000. And my mom had a heart attack and died in front of me. Uh, it was just her and I home alone. And uh, she went into cardiac arrest. And I had to give her CPR. And I called 911. And I remember when the paramedics showed up, they asked me a few questions. And then they started doing treatment on her. And as they were doing that, like, we were in, in my parents' bedroom. And I remember, like, 
They were here. The bed is here. They, they were treating her right here at the base of the bed. And I, I went over to the edge of the bed. I remember, like, I don't know why I went to my knees, but I remember just dropping my knees. I'm like, God, don't let her die. Don't let her die. Don't let her die. Don't let her die. And God chose to let her die. And so I, I had to sit there and say, God, you know, are you, are you not God? Or do you not love me? And, and I, I wrestled with that. For, for a little bit, like, like, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God give me this, this traumatic experience? And, but, but that's from this perspective. That's from, from this finite, you know, 80 years uh, that we have where we try to avoid suffering. Instead, the other perspective is that my mom's, you know, started heaven. She, she's already at the, the finish line. She's at the new beginning. She's where we're all trying to get to. And, and I can look at it from my, my perspective and say, I got 23 years with my mom. I would have wanted more. Or I can look at it from a different perspective and say, man, my mom's in heaven. And, and you know, I'm going to get to go there. I'm going to get to be with her. And it's going to be awesome. And, and uh, I, I think we're uncomfortable with those big prayers because God might say no. And, and we're uncomfortable, and we're uncomfortable telling people that we're praying big prayers because then God looks like he's not God, or God looks like he doesn't love us, or we really, we might look stupid. I might look stupid if I tell somebody, hey, I'm praying that God would do this big, audacious thing, and God doesn't do it, and then I look stupid. I was convicted of this one time. Uh, uh, we were there were several of us uh, staff members at my last church. And uh, this kid had come in. Parents brought him in. Great kid. Uh, but he had been struggling uh, with an illness for a while. And uh, the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. And the parents were, you know, they had different medical teams. And they were trying to figure out, like, get the medical teams to talk to each other. And we were going around and praying. And, and I had prayed a prayer, you know, a very typical uh, you know, God, I pray that you would give the doctors wisdom. God, I pray that, you know, you would, you know, help them feel better. God, help medicine work, you know, do these things. And then we all kept on praying. All the prayers were sounding basically the same, you know, and the fairly typical stuff. And I got really convicted in that moment that I was asking God to use his divine nature, his divine power to help doctors do their job. Like, is that really an audacious prayer? And so I prayed again. I was like, God, you can heal him right now. You have the power. God, you are God. And you may choose not to do it. You may choose to say, no, I want to allow him to suffer. And that is you ordering that suffering. But you have the power right here and right now to heal him. And I am asking you to do that. God, I am begging you to heal him right now. And, and, and I think we're scared of those types of prayers because we might end up thinking, well, God's not God, or God doesn't love us, or I'm going to look stupid because God didn't do it. So what, what do you do with this? I, I think my encouragement to you today is uh, twofold. I, I want you to, to identify a need that you're aware of, a big need, not like, oh, it'd be cool you know, if we had a second pool at our house, 
That's not a call out to you. Uh, I don't know why I thought this. <laughs> a second pool at our house so that, like, one would be for the kids and the other for the adults. Like, okay, yeah. But, like, what's an actual need in your life that you could ask God to reveal his divine power in? And then pray that God would show his divine power. Pray, God, I believe that you are God. And I am asking you to reveal your divine power so that you can advance your kingdom. Not to end my suffering, but so that you can increase your glory, so you can advance your kingdom. And then begin to pray that prayer. And then tell somebody about it. I think you should talk about this. And yes, you might end up looking stupid because it might not happen. Dude, God's big enough to have you look stupid. Or it might actually happen and God's going to get the glory. I, uh, there's a, a big, I, I would consider big, audacious prayer that I've been praying uh, for probably, I don't know, nine or 12 months. And uh, probably about three months ago, I started seeing like movement in that direction. And I was like, the, the only way that this could happen is, is if it's God. Like, it's the only way. Like, there, there's no other possible way. And, and, and being part of that, like knowing that you are asking God to unleash his divine power to advance his kingdom, that you're part of advancing the kingdom, it's awesome. There's nothing better. So I'd encourage you, find a need, identify that need, begin to pray that God would reveal his divine power to advance his kingdom. So even right now, as, as we begin to pray, I, I pray that, that God, God, I pray that you would help people call to mind what, a, a need in their lives, a need that, that surrounds them, I, either that, that they're struggling with personally or, or something that uh, in their family, maybe it's a physical need, a financial need, but something that, that they can ask you to intervene. God, a way that you can reveal your divine power, that you can show that, that you are God and that you are loving so that the kingdom of God can advance, so that your kingdom and your glory can be made larger and more famous here and now. God, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. We can access it because of the sacrifice of your son who is fully God and fully man, and that will never make sense to us here, and yet it's true. God, we confess that it is true, and we confess that the sacrifice has given us access to you, has given us access to be able to, to ask you to reveal your divine power, to advance your kingdom. God, I pray that we would be kingdom workers here, that choose to pray big, audacious prayers that ask you to reveal your divine power in big, audacious ways. We love you, Father.